Hi, this is Dion Bake from Butler Mortgage. We're currently ranked the number one mortgage brokerage in Ontario and number two in Canada. And much of our success is due to the fact that we help clients acquire multiple investment properties. If you'd like to talk with a mortgage advisor who specializes in investment property, you can reach me at 888-684-8326. To learn more about what's going on in the world of investment property financing, check out episode 23 of the Breakthrough Podcast, where I discuss the topic with Robin Sandy. Breakthrough Real Estate Investing Podcast, episode 121. If you're looking for the skills and tools to succeed in real estate investing, you've come to the right place. This show is about breaking through barriers, breaking through limiting beliefs, and breaking through to the life that you want to live through the power of real estate investing. This is the Breakthrough Real Estate Investing Podcast. And now, here are your hosts, Rob Brake and Sandy McKay. My printer chooses now to start printing. <laughs> Hello and welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us again today. Um, Sandy, how's it going? I'm fantastic. You? Very good. Very, very good. Um, yeah, we have a lot of exciting things going on and, and, a, and an excellent guest to talk to today. But first, we just want to remind everybody to go over to our website, BreakthroughREIPodcast.ca. There you can download all of the episodes of the show that we've done, uh, listen to all the guests, get in touch with all of the guests through the uh, through the show notes and the links there for all of their exciting things that they have going on as well. So there's uh, lots you can do. So I recommend you go over and and check out our website. BreakthroughREIPodcast.ca and they can get our free gift there as well. Absolutely. The ultimate strategy for building wealth through real estate. Uh, if they sign up for a list there, you'll get get that, but you'll also get on our email list. Uh, everyone knows the drill now. You'll get on the email list to hear about all the tours we're doing, all the webinars, um, live events maybe someday, uh, things like that. So you'll also never miss out on a show because you'll get some email updates as they come out and a whole bunch of other stuff there. So keep in touch with us that way. Go jump on our email list there and uh, you won't miss a beat. Absolutely. And please go over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review there. Um, you know, do the whole thing where you where you like and subscribe to us on Facebook and and uh, and YouTube and all of that stuff. So um, <clears throat> and leave us a review, please, if you would. That would really help us get out there and and get the show known to more people. So we would really appreciate it if you would do that. Anything else we got to talk about, Sandy? Hmm, I don't know. Um, you doing anything? Not really. Man. Any, any what? Events. You know what? Um, we do have an event coming up. If someone's watching us, we got a live event uh, Thursday. So tomorrow, uh, tomorrow evening, we're doing an event around uh, strategies we use to invest in real estate. And, uh, you know, I think we're going to have a pretty big turnout this time. So tomorrow evening, I believe it's at seven o'clock. So if you're watching this, if you're listening, you probably won't, you'll be a little late. But if you're watching, uh, live, you'll be able to catch that. So you can find that on where can they find that? Probably just look up uh, uh, Executive Properties Capital on Facebook. You'll find it on that group and or McKay Realty Network. You'll find it there as well. Perfect. All right. Well, um, let's get talking to our guest. Mark is joining us from Vancouver today. So we're really excited to have Mark with us. Absolutely. Yeah, Mark, I'll do a quick intro here for Mark Robillard. Am I saying that right, Mark? Yes, very, very good. Okay, awesome. 
Uh, he's a real estate investor. He's currently living in the Vancouver area, and he's got a whole bunch of stuff to share with us today. A lot around land assemblies. Uh, Mark's a passive income builder through real estate. He's He manages and operates Airbnbs. He builds shared housing communities, um, does land assemblies, repairs finances, a um, whole bunch of stuff. He's done a wide range of things in, in the real estate world over his career. And he's also kind of interesting stuff, project manager on I'm going to make sure I get this word, silviculture cult, silvi projects. Yeah, and, that's a fancy word. <laughs> yeah. And um, he specialized in training First Nations in remote areas, deal with mobilizing and training crews on inaccessible land by helicopter, boat, and bushwhacking through the forest. So pretty cool uh, background and really going to get into some of that stuff. A lot of land assembly conversation, I think. And uh, we're really excited to have you on the show here, Mark. Thanks for being on. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be very confusing. We're going to have to, well, I don't necessarily know that we need to stay focused, but you've got a lot of stuff you can share with us today. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it, it, it's. Uh, I was trying to run to my mind what would be interesting. I thought maybe I'd start with what I didn't do, which is my one of my biggest regrets is, um, as you can tell from the accent, I was... Uh, I'm a French Canadian and I uh, moved from uh, La Belle Province uh, in 1990. I came to plant trees for a summer and I haven't gone back home yet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in those days, um, I could see opportunity, but I was young and I didn't really know how to get started. And in my mind, I guess I come from a thrifty background and we always thought I wanted to buy my piece of land cash and I wanted to buy a piece of land in the Nelson area which is the East Kootenays beautiful area and every year I'd go tree plant work really really hard and and uh, put a little bit money aside and then I'd be like I thought oh I'll get closer to my goal and uh, I wanted to buy the land cash I didn't want to have a mortgage so every year the price of land would go up faster than I could have savings. And um, so it took a while for me to catch on. This was not a good strategy. And I would listen to people that would, I guess, direct me in the wrong way. And they'd say, oh, real estate cycles and it's gone up a lot. So it's gonna come down because it always goes up and down. So. I kind of listened to that advice and uh, just kept trying to accumulate money to get uh, that, well, to get to buy the land. And I was just getting further and further and further from the goalpost. So I, I put that on the back burner and uh, stopped looking for a while. And until I realized, okay, now I might have enough money to do the down payment. So I better pull the trigger because. I'm not getting ahead. <laughs> and that's how I bought my first piece of land. The power of leverage. The power of leverage. Very powerful. And uh, the first property was, yeah, it took me a really long time because in 1990 already I wanted to buy something, but but just procrastinated. And then by, I think the first property I bought was in uh, 95 or 96 and the idea was at that time i didn't really have aspirations to be a real estate investor i was happy planting trees silviculture by the way is um, a division of forestry which is uh, 
that has to do everything with growing trees so everything that's done after logging and and um that that's what i was involved in and and still to this day do a little bit less and less every year but anyway so well, I'll go you tell us about that piece of property that you bought them at the 20 percent down we we'll talked about your first investment yes that's right so uh, I bought that in Pemberton and it was a 10 acres and the idea was to my job seasonal. So I thought in the winter, I'm going to, I'm going to build something on it and then I'll have a house. And uh, I just basically sat on the land for six years and I thought, oh, this is great. The land value is going up, but there's no, there was nothing to bring revenue. It was bare land. And I, I was like, oh, I'm going to make money here because every year my neighbors would sell. I think in the days I bought it for 80 grand and I went to the bank of mom to borrow the money and uh, or part of the money anyway. And uh, yeah, I thought I would do well. And six, five, six years later, I sold it for 120 and I thought, oh, this is good. But if I actually had my mom didn't charge me interest, so if I had paid interest, I would have made a zero. <laughs> and after that, I started looking at other stuff, and that's 2003 is when it really started happening. And when I started, well, in my mind, was pulling big leverages. So I was looking either at, uh, well, I was looking, I was looking around and um, wasn't sure where to buy or what to buy. It's and um, was trying to focus on uh, two things, either multifamily. I was looking in Montreal and I thought that was great opportunity. And I was also looking in Vancouver. And in the end, um, kind of funny story, the kind of funny story, I got in a bad accident and I broke my neck in two places and was uh, unable to work and and decided to that's when I really decided to pull the trigger to move ahead with real estate. So I had no, I had a good down payment, but I had no job. And I found a really creative way to talk to the banker and buy my first basically student housing, or it, it was a shared housing, housing with friends. And that, that really, that's when I can say I really started uh, changing the, course of real estate investing and so that is probably the least funny funny story i've ever heard but, uh, <laughs> but it got you into real estate investing so i suppose that's good you're okay now as well so um yeah good. was that in vancouver or was that in montreal that, that that first one the first one i ended up choosing vancouver and uh and it was so I bought the biggest house that I could in in the best neighborhood that I could. And I ended up, uh, I saw friends that would, uh, actually my girlfriend at the time had a tiny apartment downtown and she was renting rooms. And I thought, oh, wow, if you could do that on a bigger scale, uh, you, you could do really well. So then we started playing with, with ratios. So price per square foot so oh i notice if you buy a big place your price per square square foot goes down mm -hmm. so i thought okay i'll do like her so i filled the house with a whole bunch of people and really started 
house hacking and that worked out really well and then i got nervous because i was fairly highly leveraged so we were trying to find ways to be a little bit less exposed to interest rates i thought at the time interest rates would go up but they ended up coming down which was good but i didn't know that because uh, we had come from a history of really high interest rates and so i thought they'll go back high <laughs> so i bought i had a variable mortgage and that was a big stress so i thought well if i'm gonna fail i might as well fail big so i bought a second house and then i thought wow this is good if things go right I'll be able to retire one day because with forestry, our incomes are not very big. It's a work of passion more than revenue. And uh, yeah, it, it panned out well. I bought a second house and I, uh, I also did the student rental format in that one, which in my case was mostly travelers. And uh, it, it worked out well. So the strategy there was to offset the potential uh, variable mortgage going sideways, I locked in for a, actually a 10-year term. And then I thought, okay, well, they were both cash flow positive. So I thought if one goes a little bit negative, I'll still be, I'll still be okay. But things went really well and the variable was the right uh, pick to do by far. Mm -hmm. That's good. Now, tell us about the houses themselves. Did you buy, were they close to the school? How many rooms are you putting in them? That kind of thing. Is there rules around that? Or did you not really pay attention to that kind of thing at that time? Let's get into that. Oh, yes. Well, that's very good questions. Uh, the first house I picked was, uh, it was, it was in a neighborhood that really reminded me of Montreal, a quartier called Saint-Denis. And when I was young, Saint-Denis was, uh, it's very, very close to downtown. And it uh, was not a, let's call it that way, was a, not a, it was an up and coming neighborhood. So there was, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of not very wealthy people, I guess. And, but a beautiful community, lots of artists, and you could see things were moving the right way and getting better. And in Montreal, I could see that happen much, well, that happened maybe 10 years before in Vancouver. So I really like East Vancouver. And uh, I picked that neighborhood because like you, because it reminded me of uh, Le Plateau Mont-Royal and I could see the trend going up and it, and the prediction was good. It's so close to downtown that it, it's done very well uh, gentrified, I guess. Yeah. And then how many people in the place? And is there, is there rules around that? Yes, there are rules around it. Uh, so we, the first, place I had, uh, it was an interesting format because it has, it can be divided as a triplex or, but I kind of wanted to have my cake and eat it too. So it's, it had basically three kitchens and three separate suites, but with my lifestyle, we, 
were used to living in communities and I really like that. So I wanted to share, well, I wanted to get access to my whole house and basically share it with friends. So that's basically what I did. And we, through the years, that house had very different, very variable formats, but at the max, I know we were at 12 at one point. <laughs> and, uh, and now it's more separated in, uh, that property is more separated in a kind of triplex. And the other house was a little bit about the same size, but it had more bedroom. The other house was really interesting because uh, I was kind of chasing numbers for the other house. It was a good neighborhood as well, but was owned by a, by a fellow who would take people that were on social assistance, and he, he had people everywhere. i never seen anything like that. But uh, my vision was different, and... And I bought the house from him and it had, I think, 14 rooms, but some, some people were staying in closets. It was, it was terrible. <laughs> and then when I had it, the vision for that house was to um, get people that come for medium term. That's how I like to call it. And it, um, I, I like picking Europeans that would come for, let's say, three months to two years for internships or so I'd rented furnished and created a really nice community in there. So it was like-minded people that had uh, shared accommodation. And I, I shrank the, I shrank the size from whatever, how many people he had to uh, 10. Yeah. And there are rules around it. I, I I'm not totally kosher on all. I wasn't totally kosher on all aspects of what the city requires, but uh, there are also rules as far as uh, insurance, and I had to go with a commercial insurance, which is really really expensive. Yeah, it wasn't at that time, but it seems the last two years, it's gone very expensive. Yeah. So you've got your fingers in a bunch of things here. So I think we're going to sort of shift over to the land assembly thing. Cause that's very interesting. So I think we should start off with just explain to people what that is. So a land assembly is when you get a bunch of <clears throat> properties together to basically change the use. And um, <clears throat> so the use right now in that, area is single family housing and we were looking at selling to someone who wants to build higher density and we um uh yeah we we've been in the process i haven't done many i'm uh, i've done basically i'm working on one and i'd really like to do more and that deal is coming to a close which is really nice we have um so a, a land assembly is basically exactly putting a multiple properties together to build, in this case, going to be to build a higher density. So it'll go from single family homes to hopefully multiple story buildings. And right now, uh, yeah, there's some lingo that comes with it. 
FSR is what's really one of the key points in our uh, in our industry, and that means floor space uh, floor space ratio, and that's that's what's going to really change the value of your property. So if you buy a single family home, uh, you're going to be able to build about let's say you have a 3,000 square foot lot, you can build about three uh, a floor uh, FSR of 0.75 roughly depending what neighborhood you're in so that means you can build about three quarters of the size of your 3500 square foot lot uh, i mean they're it's a bit of a moving target so they're kind of changing the fsr even if you don't do a land assembly but if you do a land assembly you can go to a two a three or a five and and that Real estate's really, really expensive. So if you can sell development height, it's extremely valuable. So you could uh, you could double or triple or quintuple the the value of your of your property by getting in a land assembly. Yeah. <laughs> and so what? Um, I think that helps describe what it is. What what? attracted that to you why did you want to go into that world and uh to me i think what most people think is it sounds a little bit risky uh it's interesting because if you position yourself properly like i found a property i could be on and be cash flow positive and uh and i just was paid to wait basically so it's like buying a stock that pays a good dividend and then uh, keep your fingers crossed that uh, it's going to happen and get a big payoff. And and um, yeah, it's. Uh, sorry, can you repeat your question? Well, <laughs> well, let me just try and get a little more clear here. So, did you buy multiple properties, or they, or the company you're selling to is is assembling the land so they can change the use? Is the, like, what is the idea? Yes, I had I had one property and my exit strategy from the moment I bought it was to uh, from the moment I bought it, the strategy was to get in a land assembly. But it, I didn't know what I was getting at in at the time. And it's uh, it's it, it sure is a lengthy process. So are you are you doing the land assembly or is the company buying it from you doing the land assembly? Originally, what we did is we tried to pick a realtor to assemble the land for us. And we had multiple failures. So that particular deal has been going on for about almost four years. And the realtor that I picked was a she used to do residential and she said look mark i feel better i'll pass you on to this expert that's what he does so we picked the expert and i i personally i, re I really like that guy he was really good and he kind of started doing the assembly and then there was trouble which now i know is almost normal uh part of the block wanted more money or they thought well my house has this and this so i should get more than so and so so what ended up happening 
is half the block got assembled. And we uh, and then our half, we had a deal, the deal fell apart. So then I we were stuck. Somebody didn't really like that realtor. And there was a lot of conflict, headbutting, headbutting, headbutting. So we ended up uh, not dealing with that realtor anymore. And after that, we brought on other realtors. It was inching bit by bit for that deal moving forward. And the other realtors, uh, the other realtor didn't have, uh, the other realtor was really good as well, but uh, I think my neighbors really didn't understand the FSR concept. And everybody had a different uh, version or idea of what their property was worth. And, and so in the end, I ended up getting all the neighbors together and together we all found a buyer. We all found a developer that's interested in our property. So to answer your question, I mean, we, we did it together. So we pulled the neighbors and, and uh, we did it together without a realtor. How many uh, properties are involved? There's uh, 10 properties involved. So the first five sold, the first five sold through a realtor. And then we were stuck with our five that was a bit more challenging to assemble. So it'll be, it's going to be a big deal. They're going to go for about, they're going to go upwards of $2 million a property. So the first, guys that got in the um the first guys that were bought off they got 2.2 millions for their property and uh we're gonna it seems we're gonna get about the same deal <laughs> and this is in uh vancouver like central or what, what area of vancouver is it this is in east vancouver so to go back to what rob was saying that property I picked because it was very close to the SkyTrain. Our SkyTrain is like the subway, the equivalent of your subway. And I had heard that they were going to do a lot of development in the, in those areas. They were the city was planning to increase density in areas close to close to the SkyTrain. Yeah. So what were some of the biggest impacted this at all um out of curiosity pardon has the COVID 19 pandemic has that affected your uh deal at all you know i thought it i thought it would but it's it's really interesting what's happening is um that deal hasn't been affected by it at all which uh, which i was surprised uh and i was also surprised like because uh, it seems like fundamentals are not going really well anyway in Whistler I don't want to go to Whistler yet but I know my fundamentals in the Airbnbs in Whistler that was struggling because we rely on international tourism but it seems in Vancouver with the C, uh, whatever the money the government's giving I forget the acronym but uh, a lot of the tenants anyway that I dealt with were receiving that money and rent was coming in on time and the deal property values are pretty stable. And actually we saw a little dip, it seems from what I can see and it's climbing back up. So we're 
uh, we've been unaffected by COVID. Uh, sorry, it's not totally true because there's a big problem with a city is uh, there, it's a very lengthy process for our, so we're basically in a contract right now and we are, um, we're subject to, well, we were subject to approval. But the subjects actually got removed a couple of days ago, which is, things are kind of moving in the right way. It feels like I waited forever, but it seems everything's happening now. But uh, for the developer, it's been a problem because we were subject for his approval and nobody's kind of really pushing stuff forward right now because of COVID. And I've heard the same about multiple developers is they're basically, their life is on hold because uh, the city's not processing applications. So yeah. we thought we would be stuck waiting forever, but the developer really likes the site. And I think he, yeah, he's gonna, he's he started removing the subjects. So on July 29th, we're gonna get our first, uh, our first down payment, which is good. <laughs> I want to ask you more questions. Sorry about that. Just because, you know, I don't think a lot of people understand exactly how this works. So with the land assembly thing, you were sort of the, like you looked at it after you had your, you had bought this place, maybe not for the land assembly, although, you know, you're saying that you had it in mind, but then you went, you looked around and you did a bunch of research and you sort of spearheaded the idea of, Hey, look, you went to all these people and said, if we get together and we assemble this land, then we can sell it to a developer and make a ton of cash, essentially. Like, are you the one that decided on that? You went around to all the neighbors and, and figured this out? Yes, that's basically what happened. But the first, the first way I did it is uh, I used to be busy, like four years ago, I was still really, really busy with a uh, forestry work. So I... I, uh, but I could see my exit strategy was starting to happen uh, just south of where we were. Uh, they, they, we were living beside the SkyTrain. Beside the SkyTrain used to be kind of industrialish land, which in Vancouver there's a shortage of. So what that meant, there was a Canadian superstore and a kind of shipping bay and the shipping bay transformed to a high-tech center and my neighbors kind of knew that I was a real estate investor so they're like oh Mark is this good or bad and I'm like this is good this is moving the way we want like it's going to increase the value of our property and I said when I bought this house I was hoping for a land assembly and I think we're moving in this direction. And that's already a few years back. And uh, and it slowly has. So yes, I did get to my neighbors, but then uh, I got I got busy with work. So I, I hired a realtor to assemble it. So he started the ball rolling. And then because conflicts happened, uh, unfortunately that realtor well, he sold half the block, so good on him. And then the other half was a bit more challenging, and there was headbutting between that realtor and one of the neighbors. So I think if even if we had $10 million per property, 
one of my neighbors would not have signed on. Yeah. And and it took such a long time and so much patience. Uh, and we'd have meetings at first, and we we have one neighbor who's really nice. He's been uh, we've been using his home to meet. And when we'd go to his home, everybody was tight-lipped and and uh, didn't really want to share their strategy or or would just have an unrealistic number. Uh, they'd say, well, properties on Canby Street are going for five million. So I want five. And it's like, well, based on the FSR, you can't get five. Because mm -hmm. on Canby, they're building 10-story buildings. Here, we, we, we can't do a 10-story. So our price is going to be a bit less. Right. Yeah, I can see that. You got to make everybody agree. And, and, I, and I'm sure that's pretty tough at some time. But I just want to tell everybody listening, you never know, you might have something like this. Uh, one of your properties might be sitting on a piece of land that would work for this kind of strategy. So maybe that's a cue for everybody to just take a look and see um, what kind of developments going on in the area and if they can pull something like this together. For sure. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to it's it's something to keep in the back of mind when you're looking at every piece of real estate, right? Sometimes there's some hidden uh, details or something in the, the in the land or the area that uh, that if you are aware of, you can find some deals that are maybe a bit hidden. What's uh, what were the like one or two biggest things that you learned from that whole process at this point? Is there one or two things that stands out in terms of like next time going forward? I'm I'm really glad I know this now. Oh yeah, multiple. For one, be patient. That, yeah, be patient and stay calm. It was such a roller coaster ride because one day you're like, the property I bought, I actually paid like 450 grand. And then, and then I can see someone wants to pay me 2.2 million for it. So imagine how excited you get. And then you're like, it's happening. And then it's like, oh, it's not happening. And then it's happening and it's, it's, I guess you got to learn to be patient. Uh, yeah. And not get your emotions. It, it can be taxing. Even the happy moments are great. And then you get like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Kind so of that, stay, uh, even, even killed and uh, not get too high or too low, I guess, through the process. Cause I could see that would be a bit um, stressful and just a, a roller coaster, like you said. Yes, yeah, that's where it's good to be in a place where you're cash flow positive. So, by being cash flow positive, it helps. You got to remind yourself, okay, well, I'm being paid to wait, but I want the big payout. <laughs> well, after having the right, you know, buying a property that's cash flow positive, which we always recommend, almost always, is. Um, it just helps you through the tough times and uh, it's ups and downs. It, it'll always carry you through and you won't have hopefully as many issues. If you're buying and you were really just speculating and hoping that it's worth X amount in, in a bunch of years down the road, you're going to have, you know, your, it, market adjustments, things like that that come through and you're going to feel the stress if you're not cash flow positive, right? hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. I don't, I think if I wasn't cash flow positive, I would have probably bailed uh, because that property I've owned since about yeah many years anyway. So <laughs> it, it would get stressful for sure more. Yeah. 
So uh, you also invest in Whistler and you, you mentioned it short term, shorter term rentals, at least what's I, I think that'd be an interesting topic to, to go over here now a bit, too, because that's been, a, I'm sure, pretty interesting uh, through the last, you know, this COVID cycle and what's going on. I'm sure that's been affected. What originally made you decide to go up into that area and start investing in those types of properties? That's a great question. I had a. Well, I had a lot of equity. I was sitting on a lot of equity. And because my T4 was always really low, it was hard to get in places. So I ended up getting a, I was going to do another, another student type housing in Vancouver. And I got, I got pre-approved for a mortgage. And at that time, the market in Vancouver was super hot. And I kept shopping and then it's like, yeah, these, those numbers don't make sense. So I'm not much of a speculator. And I, um, so I decided to make my circle bigger. So I started looking more in the, in the, well, we, I call it, I call it the suburbs, but really if you go to Burnaby, Surrey, Abbotsford, Chilliwack, it's, you, you can barely tell there's a different city. It's just, <laughs> you're crossing another busy street. So it was very similar. I found places in Surrey that kind of worked and the guys in the rain network were really buying there and they liked it. So their strategy was to buy a house with a garage in the back and two units. So they'd have three units and then they'd be cash flow positive. So I looked at these and my girlfriend was like, oh, why would you go to Surrey? Surrey gets bad rep. It, people, yeah, there's a bit of gang activity in Surrey, but that neighborhood was a really good one. So my girlfriend was like, "Don't go to Surrey. You're gonna get shot." I'm like, "No, not in not in that neighborhood." And um, but it was not that appealing to me. So I just kept looking and looking. And one day I'm up skiing with a up up skiing, and I take a chair with a young woman. And uh, it's interesting, a, a chairlift ride in Whistler takes maybe 15, 20 minutes. And at the bottom of the chair, she, she was she's very extroverted. So she was starting to tell what she did and why she was there and that she had she had multiple properties. She had, uh, I believe, five or six uh, at the time. And I'm like, wow, good for you. So I'm, I'm like, uh, how much did you pay for your property? How much rent do you get for it? And before I got to the top of that chairlift, I knew her realtor because the numbers worked. It was such a good deal. So I knew her realtor. I knew where she had her properties. Uh, and I contacted her realtor. And then I bought my first property there. And Airbnb was just starting at that time. So we um, we uh, just, uh, well, I didn't really want to use too much of my time. So I had, I thought I'll try Airbnb on a small scale and I'll use, I bought in a complex that has a front desk and they offer the service of full service package. So they'll do, they were doing my cleaning they were checking in the gas. They were finding the people to stay in there. So they, they call these, it's interesting in Whistler because you have uh, 
three phases of condo ownership, phase one, two, three. And a phase three is basically a timeshare. A phase two is where you are allowed to live in your, you're allowed to live in your condo only, I think it's a month out of the year. And then the rest of the time, it has to be managed by the, the strata or the powers in place. And there, it's basically a glorified hotel room. And phase one is a condo that it's, it's full on ownership condo, which is, uh, which is what I chose to go the route. But at first I had it managed under their management and I was cash flow negative. And uh, then Airbnb started picking up and I really liked doing it. It was so much fun to see. It was so much fun to see people uh, going to your place, having the time of their life and paying you money and, and you're doing great. So uh, as time went on, I did more and more Airbnb. And at one point I cut off the ties with uh, with the people who used to do it. So I self-manage it. I use their front desk and now I built my own cleaning team and um, that's working really well. So I went from being cash flow negative to being really cash flow positive. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Um, so how much of your time, first of all, how many do you have now of those? As of uh, the day before yesterday, I had two and they're, it's interesting because when I look at the rain people, they like having many, many, many properties. I don't, I don't have very many properties, but they were really, well, I like to think they're really well managed and they, um, and they generated a lot of cash flow. And it, for your question, how much time did it take to manage? Yeah. I like to say about two hours a day, but it's, it, you can do nothing for a while and then and then uh, one day you're going to have a lot more work so uh, two hours is a good is about what i i'd say i spend yeah okay fair enough uh so yeah. how's that changed in the last few months has anything changed are you still um still uh excited about it as you were before uh, the pandemic thing and um you know any adjustments that you've had to make through this process uh, yes, lots of adjustments. Uh, that got hit really hard by COVID, like really, really hard. Uh, because they actually closed our ski hill, our beautiful ski hill. They closed it. Uh, I think I was gone when uh, they closed it. But when I came back, I was on a ski trip with friends and I came back. This, It was like, oh, my God. I left pre-COVID and I came back and it, it was like being transported to another planet. And the ski hill closed. All my bookings got canceled. Uh, so it went from making from making a lot. Like in uh, March, usually those will make a one bedroom condo will make about you know between five and let's say eight thousand would be a really good. But you know, six is six thousand is not six thousand would be what I was expecting. So. Well, I guess it was more towards the end of March, but 
I did lose a few March bookings. April's not as good a month. I was expecting maybe four, four to six grand, and it went to basically almost zero. Maybe, yeah, because why are you gonna go to Whistler if the ski hills closed and and you're in a pandemic? Like, I couldn't even get my ski buddies to come. Also, backcountry ski, so I was gonna get my ski buddies to come in the backcountry, and they were scared to get stopped by the police. So it, it really felt like we were under house arrest. <laughs> and yeah. up until the day before yesterday, or something like that, did you sell one of them? I did. I did sell one of them, and it, that that was a. I was just hovering back and forth, keep it, sell it, keep it, sell it. It's. I sold basically my most beautiful one uh and it yeah uh what i found is maybe at the peak it was probably worth eight eight forty and the fundamentals are really down in whistler uh i mean now i uh adjusted and am renting to um more local people but they don't really pay the same so basically fundamentals are down i mean we're up from uh, what i was describing in april but uh it's it's still not what it usually is and it, it'll come back you know so and i know that so i listed it for 749 and within two weeks it gone for 745 and the day before yesterday i sold it for 745 so just this, I'm pretty happy about that deal. It, 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 everything worked out so well. So talk about having your cake and eat it too. So we'd use a property when we felt like it. It was rented. It would That one in particular made anywhere from fifty to 70000 a year. I've owned it for since 2016. And uh, I paid four or five, and I sold it for seven forty-five. So it's just like, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah almost, almost uh, close to doubling, almost in less than five years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was a, that, yeah, that was a real success story. I kind of predict that. I kind of predict prices are going to drop, but they might not. I mean, nobody knows the future. Uh, but I kind of wanted to be a bit more liquid. I'm also starting stuff in Montreal. I have a work colleague who's very talented at fixing stuff. So I'm trying to do a bit what you guys are doing and um, in the lines of um, fixing up properties. So we are doing our first flip in Montreal and uh, we just finished it. We listed it about two weeks ago and now we have an accepted offer on a house so we're uh, yeah and i'm usually i kind of fly solo but this i'm doing with a partner and i'm more the equity person we both have a fair understanding of the real estate market but he's more specialized in montreal so and i haven't lived there since 1990 so I don't really know what pockets are good and he's good he's good with that and he's very good at renovations so he's gonna well he fixed he fixed the first condo and the other house 
we don't know what we'll do with it yet, but uh, I think a burr might be the burr strategy might be where we're going to head. Now, is that uh, you mentioned to us that you had bought a, uh, a crack house or a rough? Yeah. Is that, is that the one or when did you buy that one and how did that process go? Oh, the, the crack house was in Vancouver. That, that was another emotional roller coaster. So I guess for new investors, if I have a word of caution is uh, I often compare real estate as uh, driving a car and you're um, being cash flow positive and you're, uh, I, I really like using cap rates. So when I bought that property, I was just looking at the cap rate and I thought, oh, this is a good cap rate, good cap rate. But I, it, I kind of got blinded to other stuff and uh, a little bit naive, I guess, sometimes and or trusting of people. So I got in and and that owner had multiple houses like this. And he, uh, when I bought the property, there were certain tenants. And then, sorry, when I viewed the property, there were certain tenants. And then when I bought it, half the tenants had changed. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of strange. From faces I could recognize. And uh, yeah, it, it turned out to be a crack house. And it took me a little while to to realize, but uh, yeah, that, that that was definitely a nightmare. <laughs> definitely a nightmare. But I ended up turning it around and, and that worked out well. So we um, talk again about listening to advice of not the right professional. So I knew I didn't want to run it like this. So I'm sorry, okay, we're going to renovate it and we're going to do student type housing. So what I did is, uh, well, I told, I, I hired a, f a friend of mine who's a contractor and he, uh, I told him, look, I have really rough tenants on the basement level. So we'll get those guys, we'll tell those guys we want to renovate and retake, reclaim the space. And we'll keep the tenants upstairs because upstairs there was not, in my mind, there weren't problems. And he's like, no, 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 you got to get rid of everybody. So we ended up uh, uh, asking people to leave on a written notice and all the good tenants left. And, and guess what? The bad ones, they didn't leave and we couldn't get rid of them. So that, that was a big challenge and I didn't know what to do. I was a new investor at the time. And what I ended up doing is I called the city and I said, look, what do you do if this happens? I know you have properties. So they referred me to a eviction specialist. And that, and that, uh, that was from then on, things started going really well. So he took care of doing the, because at the time I didn't really know the process of doing the eviction properly. So he did the evictions the legal way, the proper way. And then we, um, and then we had the place vacant and we started fixing it up and we we changed the use and it then it cash flow positive and then every time i go to this house i it felt like i was seeing friends instead of feeling like i was going to get mugged <laughs> <laughs> well that's a good outcome that was a great outcome eviction specialist that's got to be a fun job oh my god <laughs> That's not my second career. I can tell you that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, so tell us who are some of your mentors? How did you get, um, how did you learn for real estate investing? Uh, one of my great mentors, his name is J.F. Tremblay, and we, uh, he was actually my boss, and he hired me uh, in the silviculture industry, and he was always fascinated by the stock market and, uh, and really good at it. So at the time, of course, he was a project manager for the reforestation company we worked together, and he... Um, I didn't understand the stock market or any any of this. So we started, well, he started coaching me or I, and I, I'm always curious, always asking questions. And then I started investing in the market and he mentored me. And then at the time too, we read a book from uh, Dave Chilton, The Wealthy Barber. He, he put me onto that. So that was one book that I really liked. And that kind of got me going and started in there. It's odd because the um, stock market showed me how to look at numbers in a different way. So before I was an investor, I would look like if somebody would say, are you going to buy a million dollar home? I thought, oh no, that's too expensive. But then when you start looking at key ratios, well, it doesn't matter how much you pay for your house. What matters is how much you're going to get and what's left over after. So these, this mentor really helped. JF really helped uh, with fundamentals. So JF was definitely a, a key mentor. I also took a, a course with a Outfit, and I'm not really sure where to classify that as a catastrophe or really good. They were... Uh, outfit that were well they promised you huge profits and they wanted you to take courses and it was courses after courses I'm, I'm not an academic I kind of like simple go do and it, these guys were doing foreclosures it's all based in the states and I also like the win-win thing so it didn't really jive with me but they had a few pockets of gold uh and uh, one of them, I got a, a series of tapes that I really, really overpaid for. But uh, a fellow named Bernard Zick was, uh, I never met him in person. And unfortunately, I tried to find him, uh, but he, he passed away years ago. But he had these tapes and in the, in, was you put these in a DVD player and listen to him and he, I, he was great. He was such a great speaker too. And he uh, was really entertaining, motivating. And he that's where I got my first idea of land assembly and change of use and looking at value in a different way. So even though I never met him, Bernard Zick would definitely be uh, one guy I'd consider a mentor. Yeah, I always recommend that people do, you know, take some time to learn right like don't just jump into it i mean obviously you need to uh, get around like-minded people and 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 sort of like gravitate to something like you did those tapes i had the, i had a very similar thing you know with uh with jim Rohn. i just like i got this um weekend some weekend seminar i think it was actually called the weekend seminar 
and there was like 10 tapes in and uh one of my i was buying a house private and uh and the lady had it sitting on her like in just a pile of stuff that she had there and she goes oh the, the, those were my husband would you want that and i'm like yeah sure i'll take it and then they just i constantly played them for probably years nice until i didn't have a tape deck anymore but, uh, <laughs> But yeah, no, that, that kind of stuff is very important. So thanks for sharing that with us. Thank you. Well, what's next for you, Mark? What do you, what's next? What do you think what's next? It's a very good question. Uh, oh, by the way, I'm going back to mentors. I guess I can I consider you guys as mentors because uh, I really like your podcast and I really like a lot of the guests you do are you take on are amazing. And I did take a uh, course with uh, um, what's his name? Uh, one of your fellow that does um, multifamily investing, Pierre Paul Turgeon. I did the blueprint, and oh. I was, yeah, that that guy is awesome. He's really good, and uh, I took his course. I went to Hamilton. I, I love what's happening in Hamilton. It's wow, so much opportunity. It's beautiful to watch. And um, I was looking at multifamily. I find that margin seems to be thin, but it's okay. It, it it works. There's beautiful strategies, and I'm learning. And I'm when the land assembly goes through, there's going to be a lot of um, opportunities. And I'm mm -hmm. I'm looking at multifamily. I'm also looking at uh, yeah. I want to help. My partner Lumi, like, uh, yeah, I I want things to work for him too. So I, those are two areas I'm gonna focus on, and yeah, it's kind of fun to pile strategies together. So, but if when you get too creative, I find the bank doesn't really like you anymore, and that, that that's the situation I'm in. It's uh, for example, Airbnbs can be such a great business, and and uh, but the bank will say, well, we like to look at it like if you had a normal tenant in it, and then, but really, like for example, if I go back to Whistler, Whistler can you know make you fifty to seventy thousand on a one bedroom condo, but if I had a normal tenant in there, well, that's gross, right? Uh, if I had a normal tenant in there, would you'd be lucky to get half, maybe less than half. Mm -hmm. And and the bank just wants to look at it like you have a normal tenant and hard to finance, hard to finance stuff. I see what you mean. So I guess long story short, you're looking for some multifamily opportunities and, and you're going to keep on flipping in Montreal, I guess. that That's the plan. I think Montreal, from what I can see, like we had, um, I, I can see big potential in Montreal. I think uh, a lot of international people are starting to buy. And we've seen this trend happen in Vancouver. And in Vancouver, things were, when I moved in, things were really affordable. And with a lot of influx from international, it, it does, well, it, it brings on, lots of uh, gain in the value of properties. And my prediction is Montreal has just started to experience this. 
and because here in Vancouver we have um, now people get taxed, foreign investors get taxed, and that's put a little bit of a damper on progress. Or well, you can't always say it's progress because at one point, you know, it becomes very hard to afford a house for people that that are not very very wealthy, and that's in Vancouver we're looking at if you buy a teardown in Vancouver you're you won't find anything below a million like uh, and that that's that's unaffordable for a family for example yeah and I think Montreal is gonna see big gains so I'd I'd like to uh, stay in the long run too I just haven't really found a way to do it with my partner yet because he's got no cash but we, we'll find a way We'll find a way. Okay. Well, that sounds good. So how can people get in touch with you then? If there's people out there that want to maybe ask you some questions or, or I don't know, uh, join forces, whatever, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, that One of the easiest ways is my uh, Hotmail account, my uh, email. I have multiple emails, but the one I always go back to is my name. It's markrobiard at hotmail.com. And it's spelled M-A-R-C-R-O-B-I-L-L-A-R-D at hotmail.com. Or my phone number is 250-710-5434. That's great. And we'll put all Mark's contact stuff in the show notes. Sandy, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, 289-389-6846 or sandy at mckayrealtynetwork.com. And you can reach me at rob at mrbreakthrough.ca. Well, thanks again, Mark. Really enjoyed this. There's so much to talk about. It's hard to get in depth on all of these things. Uh, you, you, you've you got your hand in multiple strategies and stuff. So you definitely have a lot to share. And we appreciate everything you've brought to us today. So thanks again. Thank you. Thanks, Rob and Sandy. Love your show. <laughs> thanks, Mark. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day, everybody. Have thanks a great for day. joining us.